Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him my friends and welcome to the run run live podcast episode 4-405 today we are going to talk to julia and here's the funny story about a year ago a friend introduced me to julia and i interviewed her here in episode 4-368 and then recently he introduced us again and I interviewed her again for today's show. But here's the thing. None of us remembered the fact that we had already done this less than a year ago. But it's okay. She's got a great story. It stands alone. And what I want you to take away from this is how she chose a special path for her life and just the passion in her life, the way she really lives it and believes it and feels it. She's really internalized it and involved a lot of marathons and twists and turns, but it also involves a lot of passion, a lot of love, a lot of fulfillment. So maybe some of that will rub off on us, right? We all make choices and those choices determine our paths so don't assume you can't choose a different path, and don't be afraid to try. We've got the interview with Julia. Also in this episode, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite topics, speed work. I'm a speed work guy. And then I'm going to preach, preach, get up on my box and preach a bit about a new work I'm digesting by Eckhart Tolle. And my training is going great. I'm super lean. I'm super strong. I have no injuries. I've got a couple more big weeks left before I taper into Boston. I knocked out a 20-miler with 18 of those at race pace on the treadmill last weekend. Yeah, doesn't that sound awful? It was okay. And I've been hitting all my workouts really well. I've done. Uh, I've got a few more uh, 20s coming. I got 20-plus tomorrow. But the thing that really has me optimistic is I feel a good pop, pop in my legs, that feeling of strength and energy that I haven't felt in a long time. The last few cycles for Boston, I've just been grinding through, doing the workouts, hoping for a marathon miracle when I get to the race. But this cycle feels different. I've got some pop. 
and spring is here in New England. I had my shorts on yesterday. You can feel the earth awakening. You can hear the birds and smell the fecundity of the ground. And as the snow melts, let me share with you my favorite Old English word of the week, because it has to do with snow. And at some point, I'll tell you the whole story of this whole uh, English thing and why English is such a great, diverse language. But for now, let's just remember that Old English was brought over by the Anglo-Saxons. It was a Germanic language. In the Old Germanic languages, they had what are known as strong verbs. And about 300 of those strong verbs came into English, and about 70 of them survived into modern English. We still have them. And a strong verb is when the vowel sound changes to indicate the tense of the verb. For example, a surviving strong verb is sing. You have sing, sang, sung. So instead of adding an ed, it's not singed or an s, to the ending, like walked or walks, we change the vowel sound to indicate the tense. You with me so far? All right. So here's the punchline. The verb to snow was originally a strong verb. So my favorite Old English word of the week is the strong verb past tense of snow, which is snoo. Isn't that great? So instead of it snowed, you can say it snew. <laughs> On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Let's talk about speed. This has been a great training cycle for me. I feel lean and strong. I have no injuries. And one of the things I have been doing more of this cycle is speed work. And this is an area where my coach and I haven't always seen eye to eye. He's a Lydiard-style, effort-based, heart rate-based coach, and he wants you to train in specific effort zones or heart rate zones. And he believes that if you build a good engine, the speed will take care of itself. I on the other hand, have a history of beating myself into qualification shape through focused speed work. And we're both right. He is right that, especially for these longer distances, fitness is more important than speed. It doesn't matter how fast you can turn over your feet if you're walking at mile 20. But I'm right too. If you want to run faster, you have to practice running faster. And that speed work makes you stronger at all paces. That speed work can give you the strength to weather the storm in a marathon. I know what I'm looking for from the speed work. I'm looking for what I call pop. When your legs have pop, you feel bouncy and strong. You feel like you can throw in surges and then recover quickly. That's pop. That's leg strength. Now, coach will try to give me leg strength through non-running workouts like lunges and squats. And these are fine, but they are not the same as running fast. It's different. 
those exercises provide some muscle strength, but it's in isolation. When you get out on the track or on the road and you push your legs into the speed zone, it is a holistic strength exercise. You're pushing your legs to their limit, to the edge, or even to the point of failure. And at the same time, you're pushing the rest of the support systems, your heart, your lungs, your core muscles, all to the edge or to the point of failure. And speed work is the only place you find that edge. You find your limit. And don't get me wrong. I hate doing speed work. It hurts. I dread those workouts. The whole point is to push to the limit, to failure. But I know that by finding that edge, I accomplish many good things in my training. First, I find out where that edge is and what it feels like. These repeated dalliances beyond the edge of your ability, they build familiarity with the discomfort. And it takes the sting, the emotional sting out of it. It numbs you to that effort. You know the effort. You understand the effort. Second, running beyond that threshold moves the threshold. Each time you go beyond, each time you stretch that boundary, you are moving the boundary of what you can do. And third, you start to burn in the paces. You start to understand organically what those paces feel like. You develop a certain rhythm at those paces that you can carry into your races. And you might not be able to carry those paces into a longer race, but you can certainly carry the confidence and the rhythm into those longer races. And like any other training methodology, you can't just do it once and expect benefit. You have to work through a cycle of speed work to see those changes. And that's why I'm happy that coach has really leaned in on the speed work, this training cycle. I think a contributing factor is he knows I already have that deep aerobic fitness. That's not in doubt. But I need to find the pace, especially to qualify. I need to move that boundary. If you are speed work curious, your first question might be how fast? Well, a good rule of thumb is that you should be able to do a 1600 or a mile repeat at your target marathon pace minus about a minute a mile. So if you're looking to run a four-hour marathon, that's a nine-minute pace, then you should be able to do a 1600 at eight minutes per mile, and that should be right at your edge. It's going to hurt. You probably won't start with 1600s. Those are hard. You'll probably start with 400s or 800s, which we commonly refer to as yasos due to a workout invented by or popularized by veteran marathoner Bart Yasso. Uh, this is a, a way to, great way to introduce yourself to speed, yasos. It's a good compromise. It's long enough to give you the benefit, but short enough not to kill you. And the way this workout goes is that you find a track or a treadmill or a flattish piece of ground and you run 800-meter or half-mile repeats at that speed pace. So try one minute per mile faster than your goal pace. And see how many of those you can do before you fail. 
in between each rep, you re, you run a recovery rep of the same time. So for instance, I have been running 800s in three minutes and 30 seconds because my goal marathon finishing time is a three hour and 30 minute marathon. So 3.30, 3.30. Now that pace translates to a seven minute mile. I'm not running a seven minute mile in the marathon. I'm running an eight minute mile. So there's your one minute, right? So after each one of these 800s at a seven minute mile, I'm going to jog three minutes and 30 seconds to recover. And I do 10 of those in a row. You might not be able to do 10 or you may be able to do more. But that's the Yasso 800 workout. And when I say failure, in this instance, we define failure as when your form starts to break down. That's when you know you've done enough. When your form breaks down, you stop. And over time, if you work this type of workout or this workout into your training, you'll find it's easier to maintain those paces in that form. Your body figures it out. You get stronger, you get faster. And the other pace I use or you hear people talking about for longer speed work is what I will refer to as a tempo pace. Tempo is not a very well-defined term, but in general, it can be any pace faster than your goal race pace, but slower than your speed work pace. And to make it easy, let's say 30 seconds per mile faster than your goal marathon pace. That will be somewhere around your 5K pace right? So for a longer step-up run, I'll try to finish that last step as close to that tempo pace as possible. You should be able to hold that tempo pace for two or three miles. And the beauty of speed work is that if you have never done it as part of your training, you will see impressive results. It's one of the rare secret weapons in running. Once you have that speed, then you know it's there. You can always go back and get it if you need to. All it takes is a cycle of focused speed work. Now, the caution is that speed work is also a great way to break yourself. You will be putting more stress on your muscles and joints. If you have a weak link, you will find it doing speed work. It's important to ease into it, and it's great if you can get a coach. If you can get a coach to help you, that's perfect. It's easy to overdo the speed work. It doesn't do you any good if you break yourself or if you can't recover from it. You don't get the benefits. So in conclusion, yeah, I've been doing a fair amount of speed work and it feels good. I'm also as light as I've ever been and I'm doing the core work and the stretching to support that speed work. Speed work. It ain't easy. But it will move the needle and give you strength and confidence. And now for today's featured interview. So uh, let me give a quick introduction, maybe not so quick introduction for you. Then I can ask you to fill in any blanks that I missed, all right? Or make any color commentary on that. Because you have so much going on. You have an amazing story. And we were introduced by a mutual friend who does marathon pacing with you. So you were at a point in your life where you were going down sort of this normal 
I got a job in finance, nine to five sort of world, and you were struck by a major turning point. And that came in the form of brain cancer and a tumor in your temporal lobe, which they had to remove. And when they did that, you lost a lot of your motor skills because the brain could no longer connect to the muscles, right? The signals weren't going through there. So you were in a wheelchair and... uh, Instead of taking and giving up, you decided to change your life at that point, and you became a runner. And you not only became a runner and got out of the wheelchair, but you started running marathons. And now you're at the point where you're on your third pass through the 50 states. You're a pacer, which we'll talk about. You're pacing other people at their own marathons, but you uh, have changed your career to be in a career that allows you to help other people with their running. So you're now a a therapist as opposed to uh, your financial job. And yeah, so you changed everything around and you're doing what you love. So a lot of people I talk to, they have these major events. And if it wasn't for these major events, they'd be on a totally different track in their life. So talk to me about that moment and how you got from A to B and how it changed your entire trajectory in life. I think you got everything. Bravo. I'm really impressed. Like you said, everything that you said is exactly what happened. And I was struck. I didn't expect it. The fact is, life is full of losses and disappointments. And I found, because of my brain tumor, the art of living is about making something that can nourish others out of that misery. And I was told after I survived my surgery that I should forget about learning to walk and use my body, that I was just lucky to be alive. And I took that for face value for a little bit. But something inside me said, no, what if I fought harder? What if I gave it everything? I went to physical therapy on a daily basis and I did what they were telling me to do. But instead of doing 10 sets or five sets or whatever they prescribed, I would just triple it and eventually I would just quadruple it. And I just kept pushing my body. And I learned that they don't know everything. I think that when someone tells you you can't do something, what they're truly saying is that they can't do something. They have no idea what you're capable of doing. They don't know the true grit inside you. And I was determined. Let me preface this by saying I was only 24 years old. I was very young. You don't tell somebody who's so young and full of life that they're wheelchair bound. I decided, no, this is not my fate. And I got to work. And I worked and I worked and I worked and I didn't give up. And every every little success that I had, I celebrated because I thought, wow, what else can I do? And then I learned to stand, I learned to walk, and I recall the very first time I walked around the entire hospital by myself, unassisted, without my wheelchair, without my crutches, and I thought, wow, maybe I could learn to do more than just this. But I was actually inspired by something outside myself. The universe intervened, and I had the privilege of seeing the greatest show on earth, the New York City Marathon. I was at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center being treated And I was lucky enough to be there that day. I was there almost every day for over a year, but I was there that fatal, that that one day that I saw the marathon taking place. And I had just walked around the facility all by myself for the first time in ages. And I thought, maybe, maybe I could run. Who knows? Who knows what you can do? And I was inspired by watching all the people. They all looked so healthy and so happy. And I just would give anything to trade places with them. I was so desperate to get better. And Julia, what 1999, year was that? 1998, okay. 1999. All right. All right. And I've that's, never uh... run the marathon before, 
but I was inspired by them. I saw so many different walks of life. I mean, there were all kinds of different people doing what they were doing, and they gave me the inspiration to keep pushing and to keep fighting and to keep getting stronger, and maybe, what if I could do that too? So I made a deal with God. You get me out of this wheelchair and give me the strength to beat this thing, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to dedicate my life to doing that. And that's how it started for me. I'm going to make a couple points and you can comment on them. The first is that a lot of times when we're doing stuff, you and I or other people who might be listening to this, we're out running a marathon or we're doing an ultra marathon. Those things on the surface look very selfish. They look like we're just doing something to feed our ego or to do something that's good for us. But I think we underestimate and underappreciate the impact that us just deciding to do things can have on other people. Like those marathoners outside your window in 98, 99, they inspired you and they didn't even know it, right? So I think we exactly. underestimate the fact that what we do has a ripple effect across our community, across the world. A hundred percent. You are inspiring people you don't even know simply by putting one foot in front of the other or doing something that you love, that you're passionate about. You're showing other people that they could do it too. And the second thing that I wanted to ask you is that me giving your introduction and you telling your story, it's a nice, tidy, straight line. But in reality, these kind of journeys are never straight lines. They're squiggly lines, right? So I'm sure you they had, are. it wasn't just from A to B. To get from where you were to where you are today, there had to be a lot of downs and a lot of sideways. So tell me about those and how you dealt with those. There were so many squiggly lines in between. I wanted to run the marathon just once because I wanted to, A, prove to myself that I can do it because that would mean that I was strong and I left my cancer behind, and B, to raise money for the hospital where I was treated. I wanted to run for Fred's team because you have to give back. You have to absolutely give back, and I wanted so much to give back. And that was it. I was going to do one marathon and then move on with my life. But in the process of training for that one race, and really doing that race, I became the person that I've always wanted to be, someone I could be proud of. And I decided to dedicate my life and funds and awareness and more importantly, inspiring others to pursue their own passion. A lot of people weren't happy. Not everyone wants to see you succeeding if they're not going to be able to come along with you. So I had to change my friends around. I had to get rid of people in my life who weren't supportive of my goals. And that's not always easy. But if someone is holding you back and they're just like an anchor and you can't excel, you have to say goodbye to that old world and start fresh. And it's scary, but you have to believe in yourself. Along the way, I made new friends. On my journey to becoming a marathoner, I made an amazing group of friends. And I continue to make friends all the time because I'm still marathoning. For the first seven so, years uh, of my journey, I focused on, on time. And my goal was to get faster. Every, every marathon was to get faster and to raise funds. And I was very driven by okay, I have a purpose, I have a mission. But somewhere along the line, that changed. And my focus changed and my ideas changed. Now, to me, being a runner is not about how quickly I finish a race. It's about pushing my personal limits, yes, and making friends along the way, of course, and encouraging other runners, others on their own journey. And that's why pacing is so perfect for me. In the past seven years, I have found pacing to be 
the greatest joy. And what exactly is pacing? Fire. When, I, when you pace a marathon or a half marathon, when you pace a race, your job is to be a metronome, to be consistent from start to finish at said pace so everyone around you doesn't have to focus on the time. They can just run around in a group and huddle with you, and you can spend the time chatting, and before you know it, you get to the finish line at that time. And the goal is to not waste energy, to not start off too fast, which you know is the bane of every runner's existence. My job is to rein you in in the first half and then to pull you along, encourage you, and make you feel like you can do it in the second half. And that's, that's what I pretty much do on a weekly basis. So that is sort of the arc of any human, right? You start doing stuff for achievement for yourself, and then you get to a point where it transitions to how do I use this gift to give back? Right? So it's sort of the normal arc of a human life if you do it right. So tell me your best story about pacing. I have so many great pacing stories, but twice, I know maybe there might be more, but in two separate races, I was pacing 415, and twice I have had two women BQ with me, one at Mohawk Hudson River Valley and one in Washington at the Jack and Jill Downhill Marathon. And both times I was pacing 415, and both women were in their 60s, and they had both been trying for so long. And something happened with their training, and I was leading the pacing group and encouraging them and inspiring them and encouraging them to not give up, to just stick with me because we can do this together. And when they crossed the finish line, I remember both of their stories so well. They both cried tears of joy, and I cried with them because I was able to to see them succeed. It just gave me so much, so much love and hope for them, hope for myself and love for them, rather. I found true joy because they succeeded. They accomplished their goal and their dream, and who knows how long they've been chasing that unicorn. And I was so, so happy to be there to witness it. As a pacer, it's, it's such a joy to see someone accomplishing their goals and their dreams. So when you're pacing someone like that where they have a specific goal time, if you look at a marathon, you're going to go through a spectrum of emotion and physical hardship across that marathon, right? So in the beginning, everybody's chatty, everybody's having fun, they're all bouncy. In the middle, it yes. starts to be work, and then at the end, it turns into maybe a you know pure hell maybe right but how do you adjust your approach to get them through that spectrum because you know the way I do it is I in the beginning part I say calm down save your energy and then in the middle it's like listen to your body focus on your form and then at the end it's like you can do this come on right I mean you have to change exactly. your approach to get them across the line in the beginning, I like to get to know my runners. I find out why they're running, what brought them to this, this point. For many of them, because I pace very slow and comfortably, for many of them, it's their first marathon. And I get to hear what transformations that has come, come about. If they've lost a lot of weight or they lost a loved one or something inside said, I'm going to change my life. I love hearing those stories, but I save my story for when it gets challenging. And then when they think that they're going to start dropping like flies in the teens, I inspire them by telling them my personal journey. And that usually has them intrigued for a few miles thinking, well, if she can do it, I can do it. And then in the very end, after 20, I just become relentless like a drill sergeant. <laughs> I remind them that exactly. pain is temporary, but finishing line results are forever. And I remind them that if they leave me now, they're going to regret it for the rest of their lives. And I always also tell them that they can do much more than they think they can do. And I just encourage them and do not stop. 
to the point where they want to smack me. But when we cross the finish line, we're hugging and we're crying and we're happy. Right. I'm sure you do. You break it down for them, too, where you say, you don't have to finish. You just have to make it to that next telephone pole, right? Absolutely. I break it down mile by mile. I have one strategy that I've used for myself that I still use to this day for everyone. If it's becoming so challenging, focus this one mile, dedicate this one particular mile to somebody else, somebody who's helped you on your journey or somebody who can't be here with you. Just focus on someone else this one mile and then you can do it one mile at a time. Exactly. Absolutely. I changed my strategy up. I have three different ways of doing it. The first quarter is to rein them in because they've got so much energy. The second quarter is basically to inspire them to stay with me. And the third quarter is a drill sergeant. I can make you do this (laughs) or I'm going to shame you into not leaving me. (laughs) I remind them to remember why they started in the first place and to just focus on the finish. Yep. Yep. You've done all that work. Just keep going. So with your life, going back to that transition, right, of being able to follow your dreams, a lot of people are challenged with that, right? And you made the decision to leave a perfectly good financial career to become a massage therapist to follow this. You probably got a lot of pushback from people in your family, people you love. When that's a hard decision, how do you take the fear out of that decision and how do you embrace it? You're 100% right. I had family members who were appalled when I told them I was going to leave finance behind. And my father was like, what, you're going to touch people, naked people? He didn't understand at all. But because massage has been so instrumental to me, to my own healing, both as a cancer patient and as a runner, massage has helped me in many ways. And I felt compelled to do it to help someone else achieve their goals and their dreams. I mean, touch is very therapeutic. I remember somebody coming to my bed and doing lymphatic drainage on me to raise my white blood cell count. And I thought, wow, this person is an angel. This person is a healer. And of course, I had my own massage therapist who do really deep tissue work when I was training for um, very hard races and I got broken because I didn't um, give myself enough rest. And so I've had like years of people working on me and I always felt compelled This is such a great calling for me. And I kept thinking about it. And then the universe intervened and I got downsized. It was 2008 in New York and I'd worked in finance. And as you know, the bubble burst and everyone became unemployed. And I saw it as a great opportunity to follow that tiny little flame and say, okay, that tiny little spark, we're going to just flame it. We're going to fan it and it's going to grow. And I went to massage school. And no one understood at all. No one, seriously. None of my friends understood. But it doesn't matter. I believed in myself. I believed what massage could do wholeheartedly. And I knew that it's my opportunity to help others. And I haven't regretted it once. You have to trust yourself. Don't let somebody tell you what you should do. They know what they should do. They don't know what you should do. It's, it's your life. And it's so short. You have to believe in your goals and believe in yourself and believe in your own dreams, even if they don't make sense to anyone else. I read somewhere once that if it scares the crap out of you and excites you at the same time, go, do it. (laughs) And it was scary giving up finance, but actually finance gave me up. So it was the universe saying, now's your chance. Find that tiny little inner spark and fan it into flames of achievement. I haven't regretted it one day. Yeah, but I think you said something very telling there, which is you said you looked at that as an opportunity. So instead of seeing the door closing, you saw the door opening. And I think people are challenged because they don't see the open doors. And two, they're afraid to step through them when they do see them because there's this fear of something different. And I actually read something this week, which you'll love, which the lady said, 
when you have a choice between A and B, we always tend to think of it as A is good, B is bad. So one of these is going to be successful, one of these isn't. I have to decide. Well, the truth is, if you change the way you think about it, that both of these are good choices, it becomes a win-win. And so it takes the fear out of that decision. Don't you love the way she thought about that, right? So instead Absolutely. of being pass-fail, it's win-win. Yes, and you have to choose the, the thing that scares you the most because that's where the most growth is. So it becomes an opportunity. And then even if you fail, then you're going to learn from it, and it's still an opportunity, exactly. right? Exactly. Everything is a win. If you choose to see it as such, it's a win. I mean, in the end, my brain tumor was a blessing. In the end, losing my job in finance was a blessing. In the end, really, everything is a blessing if you choose to see it as such. I was given a so, second chance, and everyone deserves a second chance, and they have a second chance every day. It's called tomorrow. Once so you accomplish one, that thing that scares you... For me, it was the marathon. Once you do it, then you realize there's so much more you can do. What if everything you've been telling yourself is false? Absolutely. That's exactly what happened to me the first time I qualified for Boston. Is uh, All of a sudden, it wasn't easy, but I knew I could do it. And once I knew I could do it, I realized that the only thing that was stopping me from doing it was I didn't think I could do it. Of course. If you believe in yourself, there's very little you can't do. That's what marathoning has taught me, and which is why I'm such a huge proponent. Everyone should run a marathon because it's going to change your life. So I wanted to ask you something else that you touched on with the massage therapy. One of the things that I talk about a lot is the mind-body connection. And I think with all the digital distraction these days, endurance athletes and people in general are losing some of that mind-body connection that we used to just get because you're distracted all the time. You're not listening. And so when you're doing massage, when you had the tumor removed, you had to actually rebuild the physical mind-body connection in your body. And when you're doing massage, it's more than just physical, it's empathic as well, right? Talk to me a little bit about your concept of the mind-body connection and how you enhance that through your practice. A hundred percent. It's much more than just the physical, manual moving around of the fascia and breaking up scar tissue. There's so much more involved and I see myself as a conduit. I am creating space for you. I'm holding space for you. And that space you are letting go, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's physical. To be honest, physical and emotional are, are really the same thing. Everything that's ever happened to you is stored in your body. All your stress, all your hopes, all your dreams, all of that is stored inside your body. And you carry that. You carry that with you. And that becomes your holding pattern. So when I'm massaging you, it's more than just what ails you at said point. That's just where it's manifesting. That's not where necessarily it's coming from. And when you start to feel relaxed and you start to feel like you're supported, you can let go. You let go of a lot more than just the physical. And I'm pouring love into that wound, but that wound could be much deeper. It could be so much more deeper than just a knot in your psoas or something like that. And I love having a connection with people because the more I get to work with you, the more I get to know your patterns and the more you tell me about how you live your life, the more I can help you. So it's become a way for me to allow you to really, really let go of things, not just the physical, but also the emotional. Because all your disappointments and all your fears, you store that in your body. So you know how in running or any endurance sport, you can find flow states 
where you sort of drop into this state where everything is just sort of um, perfect and in unison and you're in flow. Does that ever happen in the massage practice where you and another person together sort of get into a flow state of healing? Oh, it happens quite often, actually, when the client really allows themselves to relax and let go. And I can actually do my job so much better, and we can be on the same wavelength. It, it really changes things. Even when we're paying someone, we don't know how to let go. But when we do, magic happens, and that is when true healing happens. I am just a conduit. The energy is working through me. I just talk to that muscle and love that muscle and open it up, and healing happens through you, and I'm just helping you along. I'm holding space for you to do what's necessary for you to heal yourself. It happens, and it's magical when it's I live for that. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's more going on than we understand, isn't there? There is. I've been doing this beautiful work for almost 10 years, and I feel so lucky that I found it and so grateful that I didn't listen to the naysayers and continued my passion, even though no one could see it, no one could understand the trajectory I was going to go on. I believed that I had a team of runners who would benefit from what I could do, and it mushroomed and it ballooned. It became greater than me. I'm so grateful that I have this ability to help a wide range of people feel better in their bodies. So in the meantime, while you're building this practice, it uh, dovetails with your own practice, your own endurance sports. You've managed to rack up 200 and something marathon, a 50 Last state, Sunday three was times. 217, yes. And I'm on my third round, Oklahoma, last Sunday. The post Oak Challenge was state number 30 on round three. And I'm so excited to be on this journey again because I've made so many great friends and people who've been so supportive of me. And I love being part of this community. This community feeds my soul. Other runners doing what they love all over the country, we share this this love when we're on the course together, and we, we are like in this, what you said earlier, we're on the same um, wavelength. It's beautiful. And, uh, and you met your husband and got married at a marathon, of course. Of course. So fitting. I was actually thinking I would never get married. I was approaching my late 30s, and I thought, this is never going to happen for me. I'm just going to keep doing what I love. And on a run in Wisconsin, I met the love of my life. I didn't have to worry about, am I ever going to find true love? Because true love found me. He was in the same race, chasing his goals to um, complete his first round of the 50 states, and I was chasing my goals, and we found each other on the run. How beautiful is that? There you go. There's someone for everyone, Julia. Even though he lived 5,000 miles away, living in Alaska, and I lived in New York at the time, we decided to pursue it because that kind of certainty doesn't happen every day. We decided to see where it will lead, and it led to a beautiful place called Maui Oceanfront Marathon. <laughs> we got married there at mile 17 of the course, and um, it's been a beautiful five years. Amazing. You've got so many stories. You must be a great pacer telling all these stories to people. I think so. I love pacing, and I love sharing stories, but I also love hearing your story. I want to know what got oh. you started, and I'm going to use that against you when you say, I can't keep up. <laughs> I'm going to use those little nuggets. I'm going to gleam every little piece of nugget you give me and store it for mile 20, and then I'm going to pull it out and throw it in your face and say, you can do it because of this. And I think that's what um, makes the person really more responsible and say, okay, I can do it for that person. Yeah, you don't want me in your pace group because I get annoyingly chatty when I'm running. 
and uh, I'll start talking over you. So let's move you towards the exit here. Uh, this has been inspirational for me. I'm going to go change my life now. Um, but <laughs> give us the details on how people can find you and where you're working out there and uh, all that stuff. And I'll put it in the show notes as well. I am truly bi-coastal. I work both in New York City and in Portland, Oregon. In Portland, Oregon, people can find me at Evolution Healthcare and Fitness and also at Marathon Massage in New York City. On Facebook, I am Julia K. Garling and Marathon Massage. I have two accounts, one personal and one business. Um, Facebook, I am Marathon Massage. And, excuse me, um, Instagram, I meant to say, I am at Marathon Massage. And, of course, they can find me at Evolution Healthcare and Fitness, and I hope they can find me at a marathon. Chances are I'll be there. Look for my pace sign. I usually pace 430. Brilliant. All right. It was great talking to you. We did a good job this time, didn't we? I think so. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I hope it inspires we, somebody. Yeah, we're going to change some lives. We had a lot of energy today. Okay. <laughs> awesome. All right, Julia. Awesome. I'm going to let you go to get back to work, all right? Thank you. You have a great day, Chris. All right, brilliant. Cheers. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. On Being. The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, First Homily. This is not a book report. I am currently reading a small but important work by Eckhart Tolle called The Power of Now. It's not a religious book. It's not a pop psychology book. It's a spiritual book. Religion and psychology are symptoms. The spiritual looks behind the results to what is core and eternal. And I would normally read through an entire work before writing anything, before commenting, but in this case I find the message too powerful to wait on. I fear time is not my ally. My big thinking brain will numb to the learning and override the important through aggregation, comparison, and summarization if I don't act now. Now is an important concept, you see. Instead, I'm going to take the time and look at it in pieces. I'm going to scrape the resin from the fresh good wounds on my soul and chew it a bit. This may end up being a bit like a cereal, or a critical piece in the true sense of criticism, not the negative sense it has today, let us both, you and I, see what comes from this conversation. This will allow me the space to treat the whole work as the moving meditation that it is, and I think it is a fitting approach to this work. I think it honors this work. The work itself is laid out in a conversation, like classical spiritual teachings. This style goes back to Plato's dialogues with Socrates, you know, with Buddha's teachings and Jesus, a series of questions that the master, the teacher proposes and then explores. It is one of those spiritual works of inner observation that has a hard time getting published, but somehow finds its way into the world with its message anyhow. Editors and agents can't quite get their heads around it, but like Walden or Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, these works find their way into the light 
and they change the way we think. And I would categorize, if forced to do so, this book as enlightening. It is enlightening because it illuminates the inner workings of our being. And, and words are hard to choose because the stuff being described is beyond or behind the working mind. It is the stuff of essence and soul, stuff that words are blunted tools of discovery. But I will do my best with my blunted tools, my unskilled pause, because that is what I have to work with now. I would caution also that the enlightenment effect of this work is going to be measured by our ability and experience. For those who have studied or considered these concepts, it will resonate. For those without the experience or inclination, it may just be a thick slice of bumbo-jumbo. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. All right, enough preamble. Let's get into it. So the stage is set by the teacher letting us know that he is not going to teach us anything. He is going to reveal that which is already within us. What is that core thing that is within us? He labels it being. Being is our true self and is part of a broader pool of being that all people and all things share. He says that you could refer to it as God, but he makes the case that the word God has been used to mean so many different things that it's really no longer usable. It just has too much baggage. You can't find or acquire being. You can only get glimpses of being by stripping away the things that block you from it. Only when you can shake off the thinking mind with its false constructs of future past fear and ego can you be in the now. And then you may get a glimpse of the essential being. And this is the first and primary thing that prevents us from being. It is thinking. Thinking has become a disease. That's a quote from the book. And this is where he hooked me. Up to that point, it was standard spiritualism. Even the concept of quieting the mind to find the inner peace. No big revelation. But tying that together with the way thinking creates emotion and ego and the pain and fear whirlwind, all this was very practical and fits with my experience. Thinking is not only a constant state for me, it is also very closely tied to my ego. I'm sure you've had this same experience. If you've ever tried to practice meditation, you sit and you try to find the quiet place. But you are unable to silence your mind. You focus on your breathing, your mantra, but your mind, your thoughts race around inside your head like panic cockroaches. And, and, and what are these thoughts of? Sometimes they are benign, like, hey, you know, uh, blueberry scones are pretty tasty. But often they find their way into the future or the past. And they start to be things that you have to do. They start to turn into worries and anxiety and regrets. And these thoughts then find their way to some event in the past that makes you ashamed or some event in the future that makes you afraid. 
The thoughts and the thinking fuel the emotions. The emotions fuel the fear and anger and sadness. And you think, what the hell? I sat down to meditate, and now I'm a basket case of anxiety about the future and sadness about the past. We are so good, so trained at thinking, that it prevents us from discovering our being or our true selves. All this thinking is exhausting. There is an underlying ego belief that you are smart and you can think your way to happiness or awareness. And that just fuels the endless loop. You think in circles, flaming emotions, and never get anywhere. And Eckhart, he tells us that we may think we are using our minds, but if we can't find the off switch, then our minds are using us. So how do you stop thinking? Here we go. I'm 900 words into this piece, and now I will tell you something useful. <laughs> you begin to let go of your thinking and the emotions it causes by becoming the observer. You simply begin observing the thinker. You may watch the thoughts impartially as they drift into the past and remind you of an event that you regret and make you feel ashamed. You may watch the thinker as it compares you to a more successful person and creates a regret. You watch the thinker as it reads the news and becomes angry. Because that thinker is not you. You are watching the thinker. And when you become aware of the thinker, the thoughts, and the patterns, they start to lose their momentum. The wheel doesn't automatically spin through the old patterns, the broken records. The emotions become less intense and less damaging. They are emotion of the thinker and the thoughts, not of you. And by observing the thinker, you find quiet. In this quiet, you may get a glimpse of something bigger, something universal. And I'm going to leave it there for this episode, this session, this homily. Take this simple practice into your life. Just observe the thinker. I have been doing this all week. And I have found it powerful and refreshing in practical situations. For example, not being able to sleep because of anxiety over things in the future or the past. And just sitting back and watching the thinker stir up the emotion. Or sitting in a conference room with customers and feeling the ego need to control the situation. But instead, returning to the now... And that allows me to be empathic and speak openly and honestly. Homily and homework, my friends. Homily and homework. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have chosen a path through this world. Even though it may have rained and snew along the way, you're still going and you're at the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-405. Things are getting busy for me now for a couple weeks. I have some travel and some more big weeks in the lead up to Boston, but I'm already looking beyond Boston, which is what you have to do when you have big events. Otherwise, you have those, those emotional troughs. So I've signed up to pace Eric at Leadville late in the summer, and it looks like... Uh, 
I'll be doing another trail running ultra summer for me, and I'm okay with that. It's very peaceful. I like that work. I'll probably look to work in a longer trail race, a 100K or some other distance I haven't run, maybe a 24-hour race, I don't know, some other event that gives me a point on the horizon to point my small coracle towards and steadies my hand on the tiller as I go along down my path. And I've found a few new podcasts that I can recommend to you. And by the way, have you seen all the venture capital that's being poured into podcast content right now? Hundreds of millions of dollars. So maybe my ship is coming in after all these dozen years of doing this in the dark. The first podcast I can recommend to you is called The Dropout by ABC News. And it's an investigative journalism piece about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. I don't know if you remember this. It was big news for a while. She was a 19-year-old Stanford dropout that had a billion-dollar startup. But it turns out there wasn't an actual product that worked, and the whole thing was a bit of a Ponzi scheme. It's a great window on and an indictment of the whole Silicon Valley zeitgeist and how it can go horribly wrong. And it's only six episodes. You can power right through it, the whole narrative, in about a week, which is good. The second show I've been listening to is called Through Line, and this explores historical events that you may not have known about, like how Sam Adams was the original conspiracy theorist or the almost impeachment of Andrew Johnson after the Civil War and how we engineered the overthrow of the Iranian government in 1955. All good stuff. Fun, but also a lot of food for thought. Very valuable, especially in these unsettled times. And finally, another NPR show I've been listening to called Invisibilia that explores the unseen forces that shape how we act and who we are. Very interesting. I listened to a show last night titled How to Be Batman about how they, um, how the way we treat blind people prevents them from seeing. I know, cool, right? Deep. So they talk to a man who uses echolocation to see. He clicks and he can ride a bike. He can hike in the mountains. He can do anything. He believes that it is because no one ever told him he couldn't do that. And when they tested his brain to see what was going on inside, sure enough, the same places that sighted people use to process images, those all light up the same way when he echolocates. So the images he sees are the same images I see. The input mechanism is just a little bit different. And the links for all of these are in this post and in the show notes. So... What are your beliefs that keep you from seeing? Maybe your thinker is too busy thinking for you to be able to see. Maybe there is another path. And when you find it, I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.
that builds familiar. Wow, those hard. Those are hard words to say. I need some water. <clears throat> okay, you're ready. We're going deep. We're going deep. <coughs> Talking, talking, talking. You get the sexy voice today. Got a little bit of a, I don't know if it's jet lag or a cold or a little bit of both. But it's in the throat. 